0: So about three and a half weeks ago, my son and I were heading up north. We were traveling on an unfamiliar road. It was one of those small highways where the speed limit changes from zone to zone. Um, I thought the speed limit was about 65, well, was 65. And we were trying to make good time, trying to catch up with our friends, and we were talking. So admittedly, I wasn't paying careful attention to the speedometer, um, but quickly I became aware of it when I saw flashing lights in the rear view. (laughs) And I looked down and I saw that, in fact, I am traveling more than 65 miles an hour. I know why this is happening. Uh, So in short time, I'm pulled over on the side of the road, passing off my license and registration to a trooper who informed me that the speed limit in that area was not 65. The speed limit in the area was 55. So, uh, mild embarrassment quickly morphed into moderate humiliation. Right? Um, I have historically been so proud of my record, well over two decades. No, no tickets, no points, and because I'm a tightwad, safe driver, cheap insurance. That's the part that I love the most. But I, I'm there now standing in front of the state of Michigan thinking, okay, I'm gonna have to pay the initial fee for the ticket. That's a curse number one. Curse number two, I'm a great example for my son. And uh, number three, I'm gonna have this long standing curse of having points blemishing my record and impugning my insurance. Fortunately, um, the, the trooper, I think, had pity on me, saw that I was both contrite and an out-of-towner, and only wrote me up for 10 over hallelujah. That was great, but I still would now have points on my record moving forward. So you can imagine uh, just the pleasure, the delight this week when I opened up a a letter in the mail from the state of Michigan telling me that there was a way to clear my record. All I would have to do is pass a BDIC, a Michigan Basic Driver Improvement course. (laughs) If I did that, I could return to good standing. Um, So the letter directed me to this website, And there was a bunch of different courses that would meet the criteria, and then I saw one. It first caught my eye because it was online. It was an online course. I'm like, okay, I'm interested. Then I read the title of the course, and I am not lying. It didn't seem real, but this is what the title read. Aware Driver TM, so it's trademarked. Aware Driver Michigan Edition, Defensive Driving by Improv Comedy Club, a Division of Interactive Education Concepts Incorporated. (laughs) Um, apparently using comedy as a medium, uh, bad sketches with themes like road rage, impaired driving, and properly using your signals, uh, to teach people how to drive like a basic person. I'm basic now. I don't know. It seemed easy, so I enrolled... I paid the $55, watched the corny videos, uh, and then at the end, I encountered this test with um, bad jokes on it. It it was like, true or false, a stop sign is basically just a suggestion. (laughs) And uh, it was hard hitting, um, but I am proud to stand before you today as a new man with my head held high in new standing because I passed. So here I am. And some of you might be skeptical today. So I have included a screenshot of my certificate of completion. I did black out my personal information because in a room this size, statistically one or two of you are total creeps. So I didn't want you to do that. And and so um, what I did is I actually framed it. And so this is going to go... My wife and I are kind of fighting about this. So you should tell her to let me win. I want this to go on the wall. Next to my advanced degrees because none of my credentials read aware driver tm michigan edition a basic driver improvement course by Defensive driving by improv comedy club a division of interactive education concepts incorporated. So um, This is what I have happy Easter (laughs) The reason I tell you this is because it's a beautiful thing When our records get cleared right? To roll back the curses is a beautiful thing. So, welcome to Resurrection Sunday here at Riverview Church, where we celebrate the most consequential, significant, far reaching event in all of human history. It's debated, it's revered, everybody knows about it, everybody has a take on it. This morning, I want to walk us through a well known account, and I want to notice some things that might seem small that are actually profound. I want to highlight how these details show us that the curses that plague us have been rolled back. How this means the slate can be wiped clean. How it can undo the very things that are our undoing. Let's just get after it. Mark 16. Mark's gospel picks up very early on a Sunday morning. It reads as follows. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James. There's a lot of Marys, by the way. Mary was the most common name for a woman in the first century, so you had to say where she was from. So Mary from Magdala, or Mary is related to this person. Uh, And Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so they could go and anoint him. Very early in the morning on the first day of the week, they went to the tomb at sunrise. So here's how the story goes. It's first light. A group of women... Head out to the tomb. This could be actually upwards of five to six different gospels for different reasons. Highlight different names. We also know, for instance, that Joanna was there as well. Um, But this is because ancient history was written with a huge emphasis in the eyewitness testimony. This letter would have been coming out when people were still alive, and if you're skeptical, you could go talk to them. The the, the people of God have always been um, very interested in proof and evidence. Thank you very much. Call back to that. Um, But the person to pay attention here to is Mary Magdalene. She's a woman who knew... Demonic oppression, suffering, hardship in her life, a checkered past. When she first met Jesus, he drove seven demons out of her. So she and the others are heading out to a cave tomb. This would have been a a, a tomb cut into stone. It was purchased by Joseph of Arimathea, this this rich guy who, with the help of Nicodemus, a religious leader, went to Pilate after Jesus had been killed. They retrieved his body, and they placed it in a garden near the site of the crucifixion. Now, what's interesting here, any person paying attention to the Bible, uh, Bible scholars, people have noticed the very curious and uh, undeniable absence of male disciples, There's no men present. They're not there at the scene. Now, I think this can be uh, attributed to a few things. Most prominently, disbelief and cowardice, because disbelief and cowardice, they go hand in glove. But it's also reasonable that the religious authorities would see the closest male associates as threats and would want to kill them as well. But what this means is the very first to observe and report the empty tomb. Jesus being raised from the dead were women. Now, that may not be very shocking to us, but think about this in the context of the ancient world. In the Roman Empire, uh, a, a woman's testimony was held in such low regard that women weren't even allowed to testify in a court of law. That was the way of the world. But God's agenda... His plan was to have the first reporters, the first eyewitnesses of the most foundational claim of Christianity, that they would be women. Let that sink in for a moment. This is one of the many gospel reversals in this passage that the marginalized, the overlooked, not the powerful, not the cocky, not the well-to-do typically, they're not the ones. But it's those that are on the underside, those are the ones that get entrusted with heralding the most important message of all time. So Mary and others, they set out to embalm the dead body of Jesus in the tomb. And as they're approaching, they recall, there's a massive stone in front of that. What are we going to do about this obstacle? Verses 3 and 4. They were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone from the entrance? That's that's the that's the barrier from the entrance of the tomb for us. Who will do that? Then looking up, they noticed that the stone, which was very large, that it had been rolled away. See, they were actually unprepared for what they encountered. Their expectations didn't jive with Jesus' words. I mean, commendably, they are there with love and devotion. I mean, they, they're taking a risk that the fellas are not taking, but at the same time, they're also there to honor a dead Jesus, a dead Jesus. They, they wanted to embalm his body with perfumes and spices to, to slow down rot so that mourners could come and pay respects over an extended period of time. One commentator by the last name of Cole points out that they likely didn't yet have true Christian faith at this point. Jesus had been saying that he would be killed and that he would rise again on the third day. Most foundational claim, Jesus was saying this. But yet they still show up on corpse duty. Isn't that like so many of us? Jesus says something, and we're like, I like you, I respect you, but eh, I don't know about that. I mean, a lot of us, we probably grew up with proximity to Jesus. You've done the Easter tradition. Maybe you grew up in the church. You have good vibes towards Jesus, but do you understand Jesus according to Jesus? Right? I mean, he's a good, wise teacher, but do I really have to take him on those terms? I think when we miss That Jesus, we miss power. We miss hope because that's the real Jesus. So approaching, uh, these women have this main concern. How do we remove this massive stone? And In that time and place, um, wealthy families would have shared mausoleums, little caves, benches in them, places that would be uh, rarely opened when a new family member would pass on. And so what you would want is a big, heavy stone to seal the entrance, to block it so that grave robbers couldn't come in and steal the funeral gifts, so that uh, vermin, animals couldn't get in and disturb the remains. If I can nerd out further for just a second, um, archaeologists have um, looked in the the region of Jerusalem, and from that second temple period, they have found well over 900 of these. And what they have found is that the stones typically weigh between 2,000 and 4,000 pounds, one to two tons. Interestingly, almost every single uh, stone that they've ever found, all but four, have been cork-shaped. Not like big wheels that you would roll. Uh, uh, And so these, these would be very difficult to move. It would require a team, typically of strong men, with a lot of ropes, to remove a stone. Which means, what? Why is the Bible pointing this out? Well, this scene shows that human effort alone... Wasn't enough That they would need supernatural help It's just a handful of people Heading out with spices Commentator Edwards says The removal of the stone suggests that In all respects the resurrection of Jesus Is entirely God's work The role of the human In such an event Is that of a witness Not of a worker Think about it What did humans do We brought the sin. We put Jesus in the tomb because of our sin, morally speaking. Physically, humans sealed up the tomb. We broke it. We sealed it up. We didn't believe. We can't unscramble that egg. But God fixed what we broke. God cleaned what we dirtied. He moved. The immovable. And then he even sent messengers to help make sense of the event. The women are going to encounter angels, verse 5 and 6. When they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he told them. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. Reverie, he has risen. That's the claim. He is not here. See the place where they put him. Now the word for alarmed means a combination of astonishment and distress. So they were, they were freaked out. They couldn't make sense of what was happening before them. They needed grace just to process it. And it's a beautiful thing. When, when like the biggest news, the biggest report, the most earth-shattering thing happens, in the midst of all of that, like the information needs to go... The divine messenger, and that's what angel means. just means messenger. God's messenger. He pauses. He waits a second to get to the punchline. The first thing he says is don't be alarmed. He sees them as humans. He calms their fears, and then he replaces their fear with hope. Another gospel reversal here. They're on a funeral errand. They're they're preoccupied with death. They they are loaded down with spices and anxieties. They just want some closure for this awful tragedy. But they don't get a terminal visit. They don't get an ending. They get a new beginning. Edwards, uh, again, points out that there's this profound irony happening that the living are absorbed with death and that the crucified one is now absorbed with life. And, And let me be abundantly clear here. When I say life, I actually mean life. Um, uh, (laughs) We can't miss the centrality of this because the centrality of this is the foundation of the faith. The the resurrection here is framed as real, not mystical, not just spiritual. It, It doesn't read like the message or the legacy of Jesus lived on. Even though he was crucified, let's keep his teaching going. That's not it. This means we can't separate the historical Jesus from the actually resurrected Jesus. It's not a fantasy novel. This is written as a historical report. And by the way, this is a claim, I think, that speaks to what our hearts really want. Don't all of us really deep down want to believe the material world matters? I mean, you think about that. Wouldn't we love to see curses rolled back, our bodies work, death, pain, beauty restored, Christianity is a very unique worldview, more than any, any other. We, we see that things are ontologically good, because they've been made by a good father, and they, they're going to be good. But what's happening here is at this moment, the women are witnessing what Jesus said in Mark 9, that they are seeing the kingdom of God come in power. So without resurrection, everything else falls apart. Listen to what Paul says generally about resurrection, and specifically about Jesus, 1 Corinthians 15. He said, if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ is not raised, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. Other translations will say that you are still dead in your sins. If we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone else. I pity the fool. It's basically Mr. T, proto-Mr. T. Anyways, with our modern snobbery... Often we ask, do I, do I really need to believe this? I mean, it's 2023, come on. Can, can I just be a Christian and like not believe something that crazy, that, that, that out there? Um, but Paul says that if Jesus hasn't been raised, think about this, your faith is worthless. Your faith is powerless. And you're basically still under the control and the penalty of sin. You still have a blemished record. That curse hangs over your head. And basically, what are we doing here? (laughs) We're a bunch of dummies. Really, that's what he said. We're, We're a bunch of idiots. I love the way the message paraphrases this. If corpses can't be raised, then Christ wasn't, because he was indeed dead. And if Christ weren't raised, then all you're doing is wandering about in the dark as lost as ever. If all we get out of Christ is a little inspiration for a few short years, we're a pretty sorry lot. But the truth is that Christ has been raised up, the very first in a long legacy of those who are going to leave the cemeteries. If we grant the existence of God, the power of God, God saying he is who he says he is, and we don't attempt to de-God God and reduce God and put God in one of our boxes, this is a live option. This can happen. So without resurrection, though, our faith is worthless, it's meaningless, and we're still under the curse. Now, typically, on Easter, we don't talk a lot about Genesis 3. Usually, uh, the Old Testament stays good and divorced from this, but if you read the Bible and you read it deeply, this is a place where all the lights on your dash should just be popping. You think about it. There's curses that are out there. The Bible teaches initially that God made everything good. That was the starting place. Everything was good. No death, no evil, no decay, no injustice. But then, that was act one. And act two is rebellion against God, sin. Sin is the direct result of unbelief. Sitting underneath sin is unbelief where we disregard his own words. Think about our spiritual ancestors for a moment. What'd they do? They caved in to the serpent's temptation. They, they eat the forbidden fruit. They did what we do when we sin. They presumed for themselves. You know what? Uh, God's throne looks really nice. I'm going to go sit in it. I'll be the arbiter of what constitutes good and evil, right and wrong. I will make that decision for myself. They did what seemed right to them. And then, after sitting in the garden, um, as the kids say, death entered the chat. The, the, the wages of sin is death and so it's there and then God speaks curses over them Over the serpent over the woman over the man and that order Then they're booted out. They are expelled from the garden Curses the serpent on your belly and the dust you go prophesies that the woman's offspring one day would strike him down. You will strike his heel and he will crush your head. Tells the woman that labor pains would intensify. And then he also speaks to this infuriating battle between the sexes. Power tripping, fights for dominance. Tells the man that the ground is cursed. That you would eat of its produce only by thorns and toil by the sweat of your brow. Don't we feel these curses? still to today. The, the enduring presence of evil, dark and light, going after one another, brokenness and pain and reproduction, brokenness and pain and monotony in our work and work relationships with the sexes. You do not have to look far, especially if you look into history, mistreatment, domination. But what if there is a way to roll back these curses? What if there is a way to get a clean slate, a new record? Uh, I was reading commentaries this week, as, I, as, I, as one does, because, uh, again, I'm really cool. I like to party. Um, I was doing that, um, but this week especially blew my mind. I have been in Easter, you can ask my parents, probably every Sunday of my life. The first two or three, I'm not sure about. I don't really recall. Um, but I've been in Easter Every Easter Sunday of my life, I've read the Gospels front to back many, many times, but I never really saw the connections between the curses of Genesis 3 and then what was happening with the resurrection. Now, there's one that's typically obvious, especially if you've been to church for a while, and that's the serpent gets defeated. Jesus' death, his resurrection. that he's. Some will say he's pushing up on his heels. That's why, how he is struck while, he, while he's being crucified. And then through his death and resurrection, he defeats the serpent, crushes the devil's power and grip on people. But think about it. How did that occasion even come about in the first place? The cursed pain of child labor births a Savior who would then free us from the ultimate curse, of sin, of death, of separation, alienation from God. Mother Mary's pain birthed the Messiah. Labor pain leads to life. Think about the women at the tomb. They're not there by accident. Their presence is not a mistake. And by the way, I think this should correct some chauvinism that says, yeah, women are part of creation, deceived members of the fall. But we don't want to overlook the role here being played in redemption. Think about what God is doing here through the angel. Instead of going straight to the men, he's doing something unexpected, something even scandalous, especially by those times. In a different and in a better garden, the fall begins to undone. God is the master teacher. There is nothing in the Old Testament that is insignificant. And then, oh, it just matters once you get to Jesus. All of that was pointing forward to something in the future. Think about it. You're in a better garden now. Something better has been done. The woman gets the message, and then she goes to the man. It's her honor to tell. But if the first woman, cursed by handing off bad fruit, now we we see a a different woman, a redeemed woman, blessed by handing over a different fruit, the gospel. Formerly, you got rejection. They find themselves naked and ashamed, divided, but now there's better hope. Better news, new life. Now, we, we see flashes of this in the New Testament, actually, where the enmity and strife would be dialed down. It would be put away. Because it's not about men over women, it's not about women over men. Um, it, it's about Jesus and his perfect, equal love, dignity, and respect and honor for all of his children. Galatians 3, Paul speaks to unity in the church in the midst of real differences. He speaks to differences in ethnicity, social standing and gender. And he says, For those of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. There is no Jew or Greek ethnic categories. No slave or free social standard standing. It doesn't separate us. No male and female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. We're not naked and divided like we were in the garden. We are now clothed in Christ. We are unified. Even though we have real distinctions, we're all equally heirs according to the promise. We're full recipients. We're children of the promise given to Abraham. That's the next verse. Finally, what about the curse on our work? Instead of just having monotonous jobs and trying to get our identity from our our title and our label, struggling to survive and get by, there's another reversal here. Because humanity gets a new work. It's the work of the Great Commission, to become disciples, to make disciples who show and tell God's grace. This work doesn't produce thorns. It produces fruit, the fruit of salvation, the fruit of the Spirit. It does the heavy lifting. So we are not burdened as workers anymore. We are joyful witnesses. That's what we are. And this is essentially what the angel says to Mary and co. They are now being entrusted. With this message. They are the first free feet to bring the good news. Verse seven the angel says, But go and tell his disciples and Peter. Go tell the disciples and Peter that he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there, just as he told you. See, they were called to bear witness to a message of very tender grace. It doesn't just generally read, Go tell the others. He says, tell Peter, why is this important? For those of you who have been around, you've read the Passion Week, you know why this is important. Peter was the leader. He's ashamed. He is mortified. He is defeated. He had just told Jesus, if anyone else would ever think of abandoning or betraying you, I won't. Jesus said before, the rooster crows, you're going to do it three times. When Jesus needed someone in his corner the most, they're setting up the sham trial in the courtyard. They're like, you're with the Nazarene. He said, "Uh, no, I'm not. Yeah, yeah, you're one of his followers. I don't even know him. A third time, I don't even know the man. Peter is now at his lowest he betrayed Jesus in an hour of need, and he watched him, watched him get flogged, beaten. It says that, that his, his appearance wasn't even recognizable, and Peter didn't want to identify with the one that would save his soul. He was hiding in shame. He couldn't get himself right, but grace was coming for him. I don't have time to dive into John 21, but I would encourage you sometime, go home, flip through John 21. There's this beautiful story where the resurrected Jesus seeks out Peter. He is is throwing the pity party of all pity parties, and we can hardly blame him. But what Jesus does is he cooks him breakfast on the beach, and he restores him. He says, Peter, do you love me? I love you, Lord. Peter, do you love me? Lord, I love you. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. Then feed my sheep. He He reinstates him three times for each denial. And then he says, go and be a leader. Go lead my people. This is a message of grace. And it's a message of grace for us as well. There is a way to have your record cleared. God sees us at our worst our betrayals, our rebellion, our lust, our greed, our pride, our selfish judgment, uh, where we, we think that we're the judge. God sees us when we're helpless, when we're defeated, when we're powerless, when we're needy, when we can't lift the stone. He sees us in all of that. But a defining characteristic about Jesus is this. When he sees need and faith intersect, he comes running for us. (laughs) He chases us down. We didn't time that out. That was amazing. (sighs) Jesus is drawn to desperation and belief. That's our Jesus. He runs us down because he loves us. That's what he does. And what he does is he'll send weary messengers like Mary who knew oppression. Guilty men like Peter who knew sin and shame when the stakes were so high. And it's the people who experience God clearing their record, these are the ones that become his messengers. People who were formerly hostile, cursed and divided now at peace renewed and united in a new work the, the parting words of Mark's gospel towards the end of the chapter Jesus is resurrected and he's got his people in front of him and, and this is what he tells them go into all the world and preach go and preach go and preach to all creation because it all matters because he's rolling back the curses he's the first fruits of a new body, of a new heaven, a new earth. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. So, this means we, we don't just get a message of grace, but we have a mission of grace as well. Think about what we're doing here today. It's not just us, it's not just other venues, it's not just other churches across the town or just a few denominations here or there. It's not the Midwest. It's not the U.S. of A. It's not the Western Hemisphere. It's not the, nor- the, 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 the Northern Hemisphere. It's the planet. And it's not just today. It's 2,000 years. Uh, this morning, think about it. There are, there are not millions, but billions, billions of people from different languages, ethnicities, and geographies being baptized and calling Jesus Lord, Gordon Conwell Seminary just put out a research report that estimates that currently there are 2.6 billion Christians on the planet worldwide. If the current trends of growth continue, by 2050 there will be 3.3 billion. And that's not just because the earth's population is expanding. Though there are regions where Christianity is is on the decline, there are some de-Christianizing regions. Our global family, especially in the global south, is booming. The same report notes um, that it's, it's not just an increase in number, it's, it's an increase in percentage across the world. In the year 2000, 32.3% of the planet would have identified as Christian. By 2050, if trends hold, and sometimes uh, the gospel can get even more viral than this, but if trends hold, it will be up to 34.4%. Why do I tell you this? I tell you this because the gates of hell are being stormed. Presently. They are being stormed. They can't stand against it. No curse is too big. No sin is too large for God to come in and redeem and restore and renew. So in view of resurrection, our response is to believe. To go and to preach. To baptize and to be baptized. Our records have been cleared. The stone has been rolled away. And so now we are witnesses to a legacy of people who are going to walk out of cemeteries. That's who we are. It's not good vibes. It's not happy feelings. It's the curses rolled back. So I'm compelled to ask you, have you believed? Have you believed? Have you been baptized? Are you going and telling others that they can have a clean slate, that their record can be cleared, that they can have a good standing and be raised to life after death? Let's pray. A resurrected Lord, I ask that even in this moment you would do business with us that as Scripture has been open to us, we would be open to it. You know each heart in this room more than each heart in this room knows itself. You are bigger than our hearts. Lord, confront us with the gospel truth that because God is real and because he says so, the dead are raised because he is real and he says so. Jesus has the perfect record, and he gave it to us. Jesus has done all the heavy lifting. Now he invites us in relationship because he loves all of his children. Lord, I thank you for what we are swallowed up in, what we are caught up in, and I pray that this morning that this isn't just a a nice service before brunch. I do pray we get brunch because that's important, but Lord Jesus, I pray that we do business with you. Pray that you would stir the hearts in this room, that you would be glorified, that we would be encouraged, that your name would be made much of. Use us in your name. Amen.